0: Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We're back now with another bonus episode from LaughCon, the R.A. Lafferty Conference. Now, you've already heard Gregorio Montejo talk with us about the story Snuffles, and now you'll have an opportunity to hear his talk about Lafferty's kind of much maligned, um, pseudo-enjoyed novel, not to mention camels. The talk is called Lafferty's Zarathustra, Not to Mention Camels. And it was a really interesting talk. Um, Gregorio Montejo presents a reading of this novel that relies on Jung's interpretations of Nietzsche and Lafferty's interpretation of Jung's interpretation of Nietzsche. It was really fascinating to listen to. And it made me excited to read a novel that many have found to be very difficult. Yeah, not to mention Camels is one of the strangest books I've ever read. And I was really glad to get some help making sense of it. But it was also cool to see, again, some similarities with Wolf, whom you and I have seen is also pretty interested in early psychoanalysis and its broader applications. Yeah, as I said, this is a talk, if you've read this novel, you should not miss it. And if you're thinking about reading it, maybe listen to it first. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: I'm an assistant professor at Boston College. I teach uh, theology, but I also teach uh, intellectual history. I teach some philosophy. Uh, I have to admit that, uh, not to mention Camel's, uh, my initial reading, I hated the book. In fact, I couldn't even finish the book. I got about two-thirds of the way through, and it's very unusual for me if I've pushed myself two-thirds of the way through a book, I'm going to sort of grit my teeth and finish it. But I just couldn't do it. I just could not do it. Uh, the second time around, I hated it less, but it was still a, 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 a chore. I felt that this was a failed work, that there was just something uh, intrinsically wrong with this novel, and that it was... It was it, 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 it should not really be discussed. It should be sort of swept under the rod, not really <laughs> talked about. And, uh, and that's, I think, that, that's the general, I think, reaction to many people. You know, we run a Facebook group on, on Lafferty, and we talk there a lot. And uh, once it was decided that Not to Mention Camels was going to be, yes?
2: Sorry, sorry. Uh, Just try
1: Thank you, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, we talk about Not to Mention Camels in this Facebook group. And I have to admit that the general reaction has been a negative one. Now, even, even the diehard Lafferty fans are saying, there's just something that doesn't work about this novel. Okay. So in preparation for, for this, I decided to read it a third time. And uh, early on, this little light bulb came on, and I said, is this, is this what Lafferty is up to? Could this possibly be what Lafferty was thinking when he wrote this book? And so I, I did a little experiment. I decided to read the book with this uh with this idea in mind. And as I read it, the book became more coherent. I can't say that it became a favorite, I can't say that I enjoyed it as much as other Lafferty works, but it, 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 it worked in a way that I was not able to see before. Okay. So my my plan today is to is to present to you this structure that I perceived in the novel. And what I want you guys to do is, when I'm done is to tell me, does this help you at all? Does this make the book more, if not enjoyable, th- is it more meaningful? Could this possibly be what Lafferty was doing? So it's, it's, we're, um, this is a little bit of an experiment for me as well. And I'm sorry, I think I'm going to probably be stepping in front and back as I wander. But I'll try not to. Okay. Uh, in his book, Friedrich Nietzsche begins his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, with an allegorical account of a series of metamorphoses that a person must undergo in order to overcome the greatest obstacle to becoming the most optimal kind of human we can be, to become, in his phrase, an overman, an ubermensch. In his estimation, humanity is currently mired in an in-between state, midway, midway between animal and overman, and he calls his readers to a destiny that transcends such mediocrity, a state beyond good and evil, a time when all false gods will have perished, a noontime of human achievement. Nietzsche symbolically embodies this overcoming spirit in the metaphorical figure of a burden-bearing camel, and then asks rhetorically, What could possibly be the heaviest burden that camel-like spirit could possibly bear? The question is asked by Zarathustra, who sees himself as the human representative of that burden-bearing spirit, so that he may willingly pick up this most onerous of burdens and rejoice in his strength. Nietzsche provides several possible answers. Maybe the heaviest load is to, quote, feed on the acorns and grass of knowledge, and for the sake of truth to suffer hunger of soul. Or perhaps it is to wade into foul water when it is the water of truth, and not to disdain cold frogs and hot toads. Whatever the exact answer may be, according to Nietzsche, the load-bearing spirit takes all these most weighty burdens upon itself, like the camel which hurries well laden in the desert to hasten the spirit into its desert. In my presentation today, I hope to do three things. First, I want to suggest that Nietzsche's camel, Zarathustra, is at least in part the inspiration for the main character in Lafferty's novel, not to mention Camus. Secondly, I will indicate how Carl Gustav Jung interpreted Nietzsche's Overman, And finally, I hope to point out some of the ways this Jungian interpretation may have shaped the way Lafferty treats his own Zarathustrian character in the novel. For Jung... One of Nietzsche's most astute and creative readers, the Zarasuskian camel figure of Nietzsche's book represents any given human being's shadow, that dark, hidden or unconscious aspect of the self, both good and bad, which the ego has either repressed out of fear, or perhaps never even had the opportunity to recognize. On Jung's account, the camel's burden can then be seen to stand for our painful struggle to bring the unconscious content of the shadow side to consciousness, a process of coming to terms with our repressed other, and thereby incorporating it to our conscious self. As Jung elucidates in several of his works, this process of individuation that Zarathustra and indeed all of us, is engaged in, is fraught with peril and full of psychic struggle. For it is a journey wherein we seek to accomplish nothing less than an integration of the fragmented facets of our psyche so as to achieve personal wholeness. This meeting with oneself, Jung explains, is at first a meeting with one's own shadow. An experience Jung likens to a tight passage, a narrow door, whose painful constriction no one is spared, who goes down to the deep well. Nevertheless, despite our fears and hesitations, Jung tells it that we must learn to know oneself in order to know who one is. For what comes after the door is, surprisingly enough, a boundless expanse full of unprecedented uncertainty with apparently no inside and no outside, no above and no below, no here and no there, no mine and no thine, no good and no bad. As the queries Nietzsche poses for the camel seems to indicate, much like for Jung, the figure of Zarathustra is also undertaking a potentially arduous journey towards integrative self-knowledge an attempt to embrace an insight about the self and the world that portends such fearsome repercussions that in Nietzsche's estimation, accepting its truth constitutes the greatest possible burden possible for any individual to bear. In order to successfully conquer this painful insight, the individual must follow the example of the heavy laden camel and undertake a pilgrimage, into a barren spiritual desert fated with its load of despairing truths. The most burdensome of these truths is the realization that the God of salvation history is dead, and that rather than culminating in an eschatological fulfillment, the cosmos is a closed system, time, an endlessly repetitive cycle, and human existence utterly purposeless. As Nietzsche writes, this is the greatest weight. He writes, Ponder it. Ponder if someday or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, This life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. In the face of such nihilistic apprehensions, the camel must trudge ahead through an endless wilderness of meaningless existence and, in the process, forge his own meaning and purpose in the face of this soul-crushing doctrine of eternal return. The full extent of the burden, then, is to become one's own god and thereby establish a new set of universal virtues. To become an overman by embracing humanity's tragic fate In imposing ultimate value and purpose upon existence by means of a relentless will to power. Above all, the task of the burdened camel is to live in such a way that you must wish to live again. For Jung, the process of individuation is also understood in a cyclical manner. It is seen as akin to a form of mental reincarnation, that dynamic psychological process of life, death, and rebirth that constitutes analytical psychology's essential project. This procedure, in Jung's estimation, must proceed through a series of affirmative integrations of the archetypes of the personal and collective unconscious. As such, Jung points posits that the Zarathustrian doctrine of eternal recurrence establishes the archetypal pattern for a resurrection into a new life, not in the narrowly Nietzschean sense of a never-ending repetition, but rather as a succession of psychic fatalities culminating in a potential final rebirth as a fully integrated deity of one's fashioning. In the novel, not to mention Camel's, Lafferty, one of Jung's most astute and creative readers, traces the metempsychotic course of pilgrimism Tisman's surreal deaths and rebirths. According to Lafferty, this camel-like overman is composed of, quote, primordial and humpbacked flesh. And so it is gamey. So its gamey carnality serves as a particularly apt totem animal for Tisman in his various incarnations, Pilgrim Tismano, Pelian Tiscomando, Palgrave Takaman, and Polder Dossman, who reprist- whose repristinated bodies will eventually be revealed to be comprised in large part of, quote-unquote, regressive or camel flesh. As in the case of Nietzsche's figurative dromedary, the recurrent form of time and space, a place of countless overlapping universes, shapes Pilgrim's existential burden. For immorality is implicit, he writes, in the very psychic structure of existence. Quote, Recompense cannot be real. Death and guilt are not real. Punishment and death are only illusions. Close quote. Since we do not die, but rather, as he writes... we pass into an alternate world and we live again there. Yet not through a transmigration of souls, but by means of what Lafferty calls a metacosmosis, a transmigration of worlds. And in a deliberate echo of Jung's Zarathustra, who pursues the goal of an individuation process which must culminate in the integrated self, understood as the archetype of order and psychic totality, Totality, Lafferty's own Zarathustra strives to achieve, achieve archetypal status, significantly identified by Lafferty as an old humpback fleshed camel motif. Jung goes on to conflate the Zarathustrian camel with the difficult burden of accepting one's own negation, the side that is against one, of, con- of confronting and integrating the separate and at times warring parts of ourselves that remain fragmented and partly hidden in shadows. Nietzsche symbolizes the different aspect of Zarathustra's psyche by means of a bestiary of externalized creatures such as an eagle that symbolizes the overman's ability to soar beyond lowly fears of the eternal recurrence, a figure which Jung further associates with light, that is, the conscious spiritual facets of the self that must encounter and successfully incorporate its opposite dark, earthly and fleshy aspects of itself. Another animal conspicuously present in Thus Spoke Zarathustra is a howling dog, a symbol of loyalty who may be, in this instance, also represent uh, an an instinctual clinging to a no longer viable way of life. Its baying may may customarily denote the functions of a guard dog, but in a union context, it can also serve to betray a subject's fearful attitude towards those uncertainties that inhibit our encounter with the dark shadow side of the psyche. In Jung's system, two of the elemental attributes of the mind are signified by the female anima and the male animus. The anima, when left unattended, according to Jung, intensifies, falsifies, and mythologizes a person's emotional relationships in the conscious world. In a healthy, integrated personality, it can also help facilitate a mediation between the consciousness and the content of the unconscious. The anima's complementary dyad is the male animus, which functions as the darksome unconscious in contradistinction to the anima's conscious clarity. As Jung warns us, though the effects of Anima and animus can be made conscious, they themselves are factors, transcending consciousness and beyond the reach of perception and even of volition. Hence, they remain autonomous despite the integration of their contents, and for this reason they should be born constantly in mind. In not to mention camels, this complementary female-male pairing seems to be exemplified by the siblings Mary and James Morey. As Lafferty describes them, James, quote, very often hung on the edge, holding back in the shade, smiling, watching, listening, Mary in the sunlight. James in the shadow was a saying that some of the other students had about them. Moreover, Lafferty amalgamates this anima figure with Zarathustra's eagle, as a winged aerial who is always hovering in sunlight. As he writes, she was freckled and unaccountably brilliant. She was dappled and sunbeamed. She was daylight itself, freckled daylight with clouds rolling up behind her. Lafferty also merges the animus figure with Zarathustra's canine attendant. The dog was in the shadow, Lafferty writes. He was a human form dog. This dog was always somber and silent in the shadow, and it was believed that he was faithful. Furthermore, Lafferty indicates that the girl and boy, the anima and the animus, are constitutive parts of Pilgrim's psyche by their very tenaciousness. An inexplicable loyalty to the figure of the camel, which it is made clear in several scenes in the novel, they would otherwise find repulsive. Zarathustra's retinue of symbolic beasts is present as Nietzsche delineates the climax of the heavy laden camel's arduous journey across the wilderness into the high mountains, where he will embrace. His eternally recurring fate. Likewise, the anima aerial and the anima's dog accompany Lafferty's Zarathustra like protagonist to the mountain fastness known as the narrow corner or the eye of the camel. As Lafferty explains, whereas the fable was of the camel and the eye of the needle, this was a giant camel eye by whose favor the whole this whole cavern existed, a, gate, a gateway between worlds not built by hands but by a projected image, a special temporal gateway, an anthology of thousands of such persona projections, manufactured by the intuitions and projections of countless bruised, dislocated persons in death rows or in death crushes. This echoes in some way what we have already seen in Jung's description of a tight passage, a narrow door whose painful constrictions no one is spared if they wish to encounter their shadow side. The eye of the camel also finds an analog in Nietzsche's Augenblick, that momentary blink of the eye that demarcates the end of one cycle of birth and death and rebirth and the commencement of another one. Nietzsche locates this crucial transition point both in time and in space, in a cavernous gateway of the juncture of two opposing cosmic pathways where the great circular channels of recurrence converge. As Zarathustra describes it, from this gateway, moment, Augenblick, a long eternal lane leads backward. Behind us lies an eternity. And as I've also indicated, Nietzsche's Zarathustra approaches his own momentous eye of the camel while being relentlessly pursued by his inescapable shadow. On Nietzsche's telling, Zarathustra's relation to his own shadow plays a pivotal role in the overman's quest to overcome the burdens of the full knowledge and consequences of the eternal return. For it is the terrible vision of the overman's recurrence that is contained in the shadow. Only when Zarathustra stops fleeing from his fateful shade, turns away from himself, and embraces his true destiny, will it will be possible for him to overleap his own shadow. As we have already seen, according to Jung, the shadow self encompasses the whole of the unconscious. Consequently, it is a profound problem that challenges the whole of one's ego-centered personality. Because no one can become truly conscious of the shadow without considerable moral and psychic effort. According to Jung, in fact, a subject is often so blind to this dimension of their personality that they will unconsciously project it onto some extrinsic manifestation. This, in Jung's judgment, is precisely what Nietzsche does with Zarathustra's dogged shadow. Quote, when you behave like that with your shadow, when you project it and leave it always to other people, Jung explains, said it is a definite potent personality, and all the more so when you repress it or don't recognize it, it becomes a sort of Siamese twin bound to you by a system of communicating tubes. You are in connection with it, yet it always appears as if it were in other people. Lafferty's Zarathustra is comparably shadowed. His shadow has as many names as it has had past incarnations, commencing with Og, king of Basham, and, as the Bible tells us, also the last survivor of a giant primordial race of beings. Yet perhaps his most pertinent appellation may be his surname, scath, a Gaelic term, whose constellation of meanings includes shadow, patch of shade, covering protection, screen, reflected image, and phantasm. The the name then, in many ways, perfectly encapsulates his given profession, which embraces above all the task of shielding and protecting, enfolding under his aegis every component of the unconscious, even the anima and the animus. Above all else, scath has been tasked specifically to act as a kind of guardian angel. Uh, Lorica, or armor an umbrella, if you will, against both meteorological and psychic storms. Yet it is a name that Lafferty's Zarathustra will never recognize, for in whichever identity he may find himself inhabiting at any given time and place, he invariably fails to comprehend his shadow self, wherein the key to integral deliverance lies. This Zarathustra, is hell meant to be accepted into the unstable hundred company of the archetypal devil angels, Scath tells us. And so he understands that he must hold an umbrella over him come hell or high water, and that even though he does not want to follow Zarathustra to hell, he supposes that he must. The greater the amount of power that Lafferty's Zarathustra amasses to himself, the more facets of himself he is capable of projecting outwardly. Paradoxically, more aspects of him that he is not aware of at all, the novel tells us. His increasingly multitudinous unconscious has its fragmented existence in thousands of minds besides his own, Lafferty informs us. And he comes to believe, perhaps quite rightly so, that these fragmented containers are parallel beings of himself. And yet, as Jung repeatedly contends, the failure of the individuating process and inability to come to terms with the unconscious and bring together its myriad parts can have dire consequences. Even though Lafferty's Zarathustra has apparently achieved greatness by becoming one of the archetypes in the ocean that underlies every mind, yet at this moment, in his supreme triumph, he also faces his greatest challenge and most abysmal failure. The failure comes about fiddling enough in a test of strength for the burden-bearing camel who successfully and quite spectacularly moves a mountain but in the aftermath, aftermath of this movement of the mountain suffers a catastrophic psychological collapse like any massive release of psychic energy Lafferty tells us mountain moving will always set up an equal force in the opposite direction In ascertaining what the heaviest burden that can be borne is, the the bottom fell out of his spirits and power and imagination. Lafferty's Zarathustra, the world-jumping, heavy-laden overman, composed of equal parts eidolon fiber, human flesh, and regressive or camouflage all mixed together had finally lost his faith in the doctrine of eternal recurrence, of endless metacosmic rebirth. He was now convinced that he was in quote unquote prime world, the one place from which one might fall into hell everlasting. That is, the place where the endless cycles of birth, death, and rebirth cease. And a final moral and psychic reckoning is given. The one burden that proves to be too heavy for even Nietzsche's Ublimensch to overcome, not to mention camels. Thank you. So, so have at me, please. <laughs> okay. There you go, the brave.
3: Okay. I'm sorry, that does not happen. That's not.
2: Why, why is that?
3: Because I disagree with it. <laughs> to begin with, I disagree with Jung's reading, I am not persuaded by Jung's reading. Indeed, uh, I grew up about how But that is not my
1: presentation. My presentation is yeah. not whether Jung's reading of Nietzsche is correct. My presentation is whether Lafferty understood Jung's in, uh, interpretation of Nietzsche to be correct? And did he use it
3: in his novel? Okay, I was hearing <laughs> Yes. Um,
1: we we'll, Yes. We'll get back to you. That's two but, questions. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I think you're right.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Secondly, is uh, Nietzsche's sketap, the
3: woman whose greatest story of the Kumen cycle, yep. the shadow, and he refers to her as a male?
1: Uh, he might be. I mean, in the general sense, the shadow is always that. The shadow that, has no sex. Yeah, yeah. The shadow is ultimately the that, in most general, which is hidden from us that we do not want to encounter or that is uh, operating under the surface so that we are not consciously aware that was of it. The
2: teacher, yeah, right?
1: yeah. So, it, it, in, in a general way, it, then we can have male and female incarnations of the shadow. But
3: I think uh, the extreme hypermasculinity in this book would come from
1: Nietzsche's hypermasculinity. That's right. I mean, the, the, I'm glad you pointed that out because ultimately this is a critique of Nietzsche using Jungian interpretations to mount this particular critique of, of the overman of the Nietzschean overman in, a, in in a in a creative fictional register, right? Uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure if 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 uh, if Lafferty read Nietzsche Okay, I have no, I, I've looked through his letters, I've looked through uh, his interviews, I have no direct evidence that that's the case. I might have to ask Andrew Ferguson, who's read all the unpublished stuff in the archives, maybe he's run across something. But there is something that I can tell you. Okay, why, did I, why did I choose this particular photo of, of Lafferty? Well, it's in front of one section of his, of his fabled and loved library, did anything jump out at you, Jung. Jung? Okay, this is this is the portable Jung. It was published in 1971. You see all this Chesterton down there. So a lot. Of this is this is his gold there. But no, the portable Jung uh, came out. It was it, it was in 1971. I have a copy myself. Most of the commentary about Nietzsche's Zarathustra is contained in that book. Okay. It's a series of chapters from different works, it has different essays by, by Jung, and if you look at the index, if you page through it, there's innumerable commentaries and critiques of Nietzsche's overman of his Zarathustra from a Jungian point of view in that book. And we know from the extensive quotations of Jung that we find in, scattered throughout uh, Lafferty's works, most of those quotes come from that book. So, we know that he really read that book carefully. He paged through it. So, the chances that he encountered Jung's critique of Nietzsche in those pages is, is quite good. And he, traced, he always
2: traced sources. Always.
1: Exactly right. Even if he hadn't read
2: Nietzsche before, I really think he would have. He would go dig it out and go look at Nietzsche to get you know, a digital point.
1: That's, that's right. That's right.
2: So with, with
1: Here's something that kind of helped me, right? And everybody, everybody that I've talked to mentions this. This main protagonist is oddly well. First of all, he's completely uh, unlikable. There's just nothing that we can hold on to. There's no there's no redeeming qualities to this person. And, but in the, but also he's oddly flat. He's almost like one dimensional. There's nothing. There's nothing going on there. Usually, you, if you if you present an entire novel with one protagonist, and you, you the writer will let us into the interior life of the of this character, we'll see. The good and the bad will see doubts, we will see conflicts, we will see love and hate and so forth. And here's my contention. I think that there's only one character in this novel. The title character is the only person in this novel. And that all the other characters that we encounter are uh, projections of the various parts of the psyche. So there is a good part to the, to the title character. It's just, not, it's just not in the title character. It's projected out into his, his, uh, his guardian angel. And there is a feminine side to, to, to the character, but it's not in the character. It's projected out onto the anima. And there's a loyal, protective, dog-like uh, aspect that maybe is lovable about this character. It's just that we're not going to find it in the character. We're going to find it in the animus, in the young brother who's a dog-like figure. And I think every character that we encounter is some facet, some shard of the psyche of the one character, which then leads me to the other, other thing about this book that everybody mentions to me as to why they don't like it, and that's the violence. Okay. And, I, and I agree, that's, it's blood-curdling at times, it's very difficult to... To see, what, what, So there's a lot to be said about, about Lafferty and violence, and we're going to sort of deal with that a little bit also when we come to, to snuffles in the afternoon. But here's, here's what, something I want to say. I think that the violence, first of all, is a, is a reflection of what Lafferty thinks someone living beyond good and evil, who has no moral restraints, who has no final judgment would act like. It's a total disregard for human life. There are no repercussions to how you treat the other people with the cruelty that you treat other people. Remember the for good or bad, the union overman, the ubermensch is inextricably to not, tied in our minds with n- Nazism, okay, with Hitler, who loved Zarathustra, who modeled himself after Zarathustra. Is this person a kind of? Hitler-type character, in his in his use of of, of violence. So that's wh- that's one consideration. Another consideration is that Jung says that if the individuation process fails, that is, if the individual either refuses or somehow uh, catastrophically fails in integrating the various aspects of the psyche, one possible uh, Response will be to try to suppress or destroy parts of the psyche. The parts of the psyche that it, that the person, the ego cannot bear to engage with any longer. You either have to bury it so deep underneath in your conscious that you, it will never, it will never come to bother you again, or you have to symbolically and in a way psychologically, you have to kill it. You have to maim it. You have to destroy it. And if it's true that all of these characters in this novel are parts of the psyche, then perhaps what he's doing is that he's violently, sickeningly killing off parts of his psyche. We have a kind of self-emulation of the psyche going on, which is why it is so violent. He becomes flatter and flatter. And finally, he collapses under the weight of, of the burden of what he's trying to do, which is to try to either kill or repress or manipulate every aspect of his psyche that he can't deal with. And he, In a way, he succeeds, but he succeeds by completely destroying himself. And that's going to be, I think that's the hell. I think that's the hell that he sends himself so, so, to.
4: Letter, to the that's right. Doing
1: this righteous man. That's right. So the, so, so the sadistic joy of destroying... The good,
2: yeah. yeah. But, but but I got the sense throughout the book that he's constantly saying that it's for pleasure, yes, and telling himself that it's for pleasure, trying to convince himself.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of scenes like that where where they, where something 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 innocent or something weak is is not just destroyed, but it's 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 in, harm and pain are inflicted upon it just for the sake of the pain, right? Yeah. because the person inflicting the pain gets a kind of a kick out of it. I was
2: telling himself he does. I don't, sure.
1: they do, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's true. But at least that's a rationale that they're yeah. using, right? So I'm thinking is that is that a kind of is that a kind of indictment of what the Nietzschean Overman, taken to its ultimate conclusion, would be a kind of sick monster of the ego whose only real source of pleasure is to inflict pain on on the weak. It could be. So 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 I think I'm not sure how much time we have left, but. It, does my presentation help you to see the novel as being a, at least a little bit more successful than you thought on your first reading? Does it does it hang together a little bit better? Does this reading give you a, an, an entryway into the text that you, maybe you didn't have before? That's what I was hoping to do. I'm not saying this is the only possible interpretation of this novel, but I'm saying it is a possible interpretation that might be of help to some people. Yes, Andrew. I want to
2: ask that, but I like, Went different ways about this novel over the course of his life, or famously later on. Yeah. I thought it was, it was maybe less successful than he But when he first sent it to Virginia Kid um, and, and got uh, sort of a, it, it, a cautiously ambivalent response that, that, that from her, and it Shielded then later on, that she said, uh, um, I'm really taken aback at the amount of bloodletting, commiseration, and being repetitive violence. Um, I don't mind telling you it disturbs me, not in a good way. Uh, he says, uh, I really don't care very much whether or not the Mission Campbell sells, or even whether anyone likes it or finishes it. <laughs> all
1: right. He was being prophetic. Okay. It's, it's <laughs> the best thing that I've
2: written in the SF field. And this is a, no, after Taskmaster, after Fourth Mission. Sure. A of Earth. But SF is the field with the most hatred and fear of anything at all original. It's fun to write something a little better and much more seminal than one has been doing, but there's always the knowledge that only by the rarest and weirdest accident can it be accepted. So don't worry that in any of the grooves as it progresses, it won't. And I probably won't indulge in an originality bit again for a long time because I an overpowering urge towards it.
1: <laughs> okay. So that's that's a wonderful at least initially he thought he had done he had broken new ground. Eventually, you know, if we take it, if we take that la- that final inscription, Maybe ultimately he felt it was a, it was, it was a failure. But, the, but then that, that raises the question, what precisely did he think that he was doing that was so original? And my thesis, I think, kind of fits into that. I think his reading, his Jungian critique of the Nietzschean overman as the, un, as the thematic basis for an SF novel, I think is pretty cool. Even if I did come up with the idea myself, I had no idea if I'm right or wrong. But it kind of, I can see how Lafferty would have gotten kind of excited about that. You know, I'm doing something that nobody else has pulled off. And I don't care if anybody reads it or even finishes it. You know, most of us here had to sort of push ourselves to finish it. Okay? Um, look. All
3: right. <laughs> uh, I don't think, okay, who it? I don't think okay, the cab is a dark side. I don't think this is a critique. I think the I think the encounter with the camel sales yeah. shows the is a distinction. The camels are in, the camels are something extent real in a sense in which the protagonist in which the protagonist is not because the protagonist because the protagonist is because while I while I agree with the all of your presentation about what's Um I well, what you call, um, I think is much
1: I think there is really a much simpler way to see it. Well, let me respond, and then you can go on. First of all, I, I, I largely agree with what you're saying. My only caveat is that the sh- the, the camel is not the shadow. If the camel's burden is precisely the ego that must encounter the shadow and incorporate it into itself. The failure of the camel is the failure of integration. It's the externalization and ultimate destruction of its shadow sides, of its shadow aspect, which is why the camel ultimately...
3: Ah, I see a very different camel. A story and writer that you haven't have mentioned. Yes. There's a camel in Peter Yes. Who turns out to be an angel. And I think that is... It, and I find that much more helpful. Well, but there's there's an
1: angel. There's an angel in this novel as well, and it's the and it's the camel's guardian angel.
3: Yeah, no, uh, but I think I think the is. In it. I think while he may be, he, while I, while he has some of the thinking of your ego, of of universes, but above all, the genuine universes. Versus 80 sentence Otherwise, why is Ben on it? But, but I think, but I think we're back the anti
1: Why you? Well, in 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 a way, well, you know, let me let me agree with you again. Let me stop you so I can agree with you, please. let me, let me, let me, let me say you're hundred percent right. And there is there is an antichrist in Jung. I mean, um, uh, and, and and there's an antichrist even more famously in Nietzsche. Nietzsche's almost final work. The Antichrist is a kind of summation of what Zarathustra, the, the, the old Man will become once he reaches his culmination, which is to be the, the precise antagonist of, of the Christ figure.
3: But, but I do not think this is Antichrist, because I, again, I, I gave up for God. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to. Okay, that I right, I'm not. I'm not, not going to argue with your with
1: your particular interpretation of Nietzsche. My only concern is the way in which Jung read Nietzsche and how that reading interp- it was influential on Laughing.
3: Oh, I have a question. Did Lafferty <laughs> have? Did Lafferty get the portable Nietzsche, which I know without by 1910? That would
1: be the holy grail for me. I went through every picture of Lafferty that I could find in his library to find, a, you know, the portable Nietzsche in one of the shelves, and I could find it. So I, I can't say whether he read Nietzsche, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he never picked up a, a book by Nietzsche. The only important thing is that he read Jung on Nietzsche, and that's what uh, this novel is about.
2: Uh, Nancy,
3: and then let's wrap up. Uh, Okay, Um, I don't know, it's at least given me a different angle on the book, because
5: Zarathustra is kind of cool because he's seeking the truth. Pilgerman doesn't care about the truth. He's not seeking anything except safety and luxury and
1: people liking
2: him. well,
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a polemical work. I mean, mean, uh, for, for Lafferty, the Nietzschean overman is a completely negative concept. It's, it's evil incarnate. So the, the pursuit here is not of truth, but of the pursuit of ultimate evil, which was to become the, the perfect embodiment of the overman. So that's the polemical side of the novel. Yeah. Somebody else had a hand up at some point? Uh, Kevin? This,
2: I it, it gave me a beautiful idea, a uh, beautiful insight with the um, novel, if you're coming about his failure being the failure to be a great because that's been kind a of theme that's run through a lot of Lafferty's work. Yeah, uh, especially uh, Frog on the Mountain. Yep, yeah. where Garamask has to incorporate and, and basically impersonate each of the four creatures and ultimately becoming the fourth. Yeah. Um, or in uh, Fourth Mansions.
1: Yeah, there, there you have an integration. Because right. the four figures are finally integrated in that figure at the end of the exactly. novel. Exactly. Yeah. So but, the,
2: failure, the failure to integrate will be failure. Yeah.
1: It, it's a theme that, 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 that uh, Lafferty picks up in Jung, and, and, and you can see it popping up in all of his works throughout the years. Failure is the failure of integration, success is, is, the, is the successful integration of the parts of the psyche. That's just the basis for, for much of his fiction.
2: Yes. So you're saying reading left is his <coughs> intellectual his history and his religious convictions that he's primarily concerned with psychological. And well no, because because not, not No, around. because
1: because that can that can that can fit very well into, into a religious anthropology, right? Okay. Because because then, then the question becomes, well what why are human beings broken? Why are they disintegrated? Why are their facets uh, not fitting together the way they ought to? And the answer to that is the fall, original sin, the, the, that, that, that which causes the, the initial and everlasting brokenness of the, human, of the human creature.
2: So I don't think they're, they're antithetical to each other. Okay, but it's, it seems like he's always writing at multiple levels, and you're, you're focusing on one true aspect
1: of that. Well, I, I only... Had, <clears throat> yeah, well, I'm up. you should have been here when I gave my talk on Fourth Mansions where I went way deep into the, in the theological uh, field here. But no, look, I only had half an hour. Again, <laughs> yeah. okay, I'm trying to break new ground. I'm trying to make a new beating of this novel that no one has ever come up with before. So I sort of had to simplify. I had to cut out a lot of stuff so I could, I could talk for just a half hour and let you guys ask questions. So, yes... The, there's there's a whole aspect of the theological and the religious and the spiritual to this novel that also then could be brought up to the fore, but I don't see it as antithetical to the psychological aspects of the novel. I agree with that. Okay. Yes? There is a section where in the not mentioned panels where uh, I think really the first panel has the
4: second best.
2: Opinion. Yeah. Yes. Does that mean that's part of the?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. Why is the camel the second best of all animals? I don't know. To <laughs> tell you the truth, I don't know. There might be some Nietzschean or Union dimension to that, but I'm, I'm afraid I haven't been able to plumb the depths of that. Thymistic
3: <laughs> Excuse me? The award the of mystic Which is? When the Greeks... And won its They proceeded to, they collectively made a dedication to Delphi and they were arguing about whose name would be out And they had the commander of every ship vote. And the story is that every ship by uh, a commander said, he said, uh, said p- p- listed the people who were responsible for the victory and everyone put in, every commander put himself first and submit to Put himself second. And put and Mr. B. second? Ah. Mr. B. didn't have a shape. people all one of the Dini. That's it. So, uh, <laughs> so they put, uh, and they put Mr. B. very much dedication.
1: Okay, well, uh, I, uh, yeah. Lafferty's reading of ancient history and, and all these things is, is amazing, so I, I wouldn't put it past him to, to, well, pe- to, 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 to be, be aware of that. It might be something. He must know.
4: Yes, anybody else?
1: Anybody else? Yes?
4: Just a small thing. So, thank you for uh, Presentation, You went in infinitely deeper than, than I did, and I'm still <laughs> in the process of reading, so okay. you gave me kind of a okay. pair of eyes, oh, so my analysis was much simpler than what you did. So I just wanted to mention two things that this text did for me. So first of all, uh, you all know letters and writing that this way. Kind of peculiar quality, and for the longest time I was trying to put my finger on it. what is it. Because sometimes, you know, he writes things kind of very similar to some other writers that probably checked it, but he does it in such way. He has a way with language that creates completely different uh, air. And reading the uh, not to mention camels for the first time, I think I found it for myself. That sometimes it sounds like sermon. So. I don't know if any of you noticed the same thing, and maybe I'm completely wrong. Okay. I'm not a religious person, okay. but I saw this text that all it is observant, and okay. the cadence and the rhythm and the way the words are put together. Okay. okay. And the any, other thing
1: I noticed, any any particular works that you're thinking of? Uh,
4: in terms of what? Yeah. I noticed it in camels, but it okay. goes back to other works. Um, okay. Like for example. Well,
1: We'll have to talk more about that. Um,
3: okay.
4: And the other thing is just a tiny, tiny bit of an uh, interesting observation. So he has again very interesting way of using words from other languages okay. in this work. So I noticed, of course, uh, that Noah Zontik, uh, his name is the Russian word Zontik, which means umbrella. It's yeah. He's often referred to as umbrella for um,
1: That's the right. Main that's right. And, of course, no one is in Russia named Lundik. <laughs> no.
4: <laughs>
5: yeah. But somehow,
4: the way yeah. Lafferty uses it, you completely believe it. The sounds like uh, a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. leg- uh, leg-
1: so, so, so Lafferty, one o- among his many things is he, uh-huh. he's, he taught himself uh, many, many, many languages. Uh, he had a reading la- uh, knowledge of at least a dozen languages. Uh, Andrew can, can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and he loves to borrow words from other languages and use it as names for people or places, thinking, well, this is a hidden little clue. If you know German or Russian or, you know, Japanese, there's going to be a word in there that's going to give you a clue as to who this character or what this place is. Like uh, from
4: another work, of his, uh, the name Duch Doctor. Uh-huh. I forgot the story of those. So Duke means spirit. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. means spirit. Yeah, right. so that he picked that up when he was in the Pacific during World War II. He picked yeah. up some of that stuff. Yes, did I see another hand? Back there somewhere? Go ahead. Yes, because,
5: uh, Who is the editor who bought this? I think That's what we were discussing this morning. We couldn't figure out Rod, what it was.
2: Roger Elwood ended up buying it, and, but it was, a yeah. weird, it was a very weird contract. He, ended up, he bought it and submitted it to Bob Samaral, who published it, with a voucher for purchase. It's very strange, and I'm not really sure, reading the correspondence, whether Roger actually... Read it all. Or no, or no, it, it seems to me, it seems to me, that he just like picked up
5: like, oh, it's a, it's a novel. That's not. Yeah, that sounds good. like Roger. if you think about it, a book like this in today's market would be unpublishable. Yeah. Like, nobody would dare. Harriet yeah. <laughs> Mstry had a chance at it and passed on it, and after that, I think Roger. Yeah. Just too strange, and it's really a very uncommercial book. But. What, what we're actually seeing is we're seeing the uh, sort of the days of innocence, back when science fiction was a ghetto. In those days, basically any science fiction book would sell about as well as any other science fiction book. At least that was what was assumed. So it didn't matter what was in it. That was how I think that's actually the whole secret of how Latin it got published. It didn't matter what was in it. As long as it had a science fiction cover, it would sell fifty thousand copies in paperback. And so, and in effect, there was no adult supervision.
2: And that's how it's other, The other sort of afterlife of this is that usually Bob Merrill would send their science fiction books out to paperback presses to do a vision yeah. of it, and there never was one for not to mention Campbell's because um, the, editor didn't, the editor, Adele, wanted it, wanted the to make changes, which she was happy to do, but then the, the figures came in and the arrow of spreadsheets descended, and they figured out like how few copies of the book were actually selling, and Adele just like tilted it entirely. But so you know how,
5: how uh, Roger Elwood used to assemble and the story goes. Roger Elwood used to just acquire, he would buy lots of stories by writers who were his regulars. You know, a lot of names repeat in his, including Laffrey. Also then, uh, and what he would do is he would simply line them up on the dining room table and he would pile of black a pile of Waltz in a pile of whatever. And whenever he got a contract for an anthology, he would just go pick up one here, 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 here. <laughs> <laughs> And um, obviously in the case of Blackman, there may have been some virtue in this method. if you had one, you been scared off. Okay. So so was Roger behind all those other Bob's Merrill
2: science fiction books? Uh, Not all of them, but he was like he was, I mean he had a he had a toe in like basically every breath of the time just because he seemed to be doing so much. Dozens or hundreds of it. The, 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 the velocity, velocity yes. of, his, of his work was, was maybe more than the, than the substance of it. He basically killed the original anthology. I've heard that. You <laughs> <laughs> a little ever
3: shaded. <laughs> <laughs> we're a few anthologies, some of them. All right. He ultimately spoke at the first page. All right, the bad, the bad news is we have a break. Uh, the good news is we're breaking the lunch, and we can all continue the conversation
2: while we eat. Uh, first a round of applause for the word. <laughs>